Hello and welcome to Value Driven Data Science, brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting. I'm your host, Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and today I'm joined by guest Stuart Black to talk about the role of boards in maximizing the value of data. Stuart Black is an Enterprise Fellow in Data Analytics, Disruption and Innovation at the University of Melbourne and is just finalizing his PhD right now. So by the time this goes to air, he will be Dr. Stuart Black. Prior to joining academia, Stuart spent 30 years in professional services and industry at employers including Deloitte, where he was senior partner, National Australia Bank, and A.T. Carney. He is also a co-author of the recently released book, Business Model Transformation, the AI and Cloud Technology Revolution. Stu, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I should say long-time podcast listener, first-time podcast participant, so thank you. We're very happy to have you. Now, Stu is a man who understands what boards think when it comes to data. As a former Big Four partner, he gained professional experience working with board directors, and that clearly wasn't enough for him. So now that he's moved into academia, one of his main research focuses is on the attitudes that board directors have to secondary data use. So if you work for an organization with a board and have ever wondered what your organization's directors are thinking with regard to data use, this is the episode for you. To get the ball rolling, Stu, um, how about we start with your book? So can you tell us a bit about your new book and how that ties in with your research focus of board attitudes to secondary data use? Absolutely, because in, in a funny way, they come from a similar place, the book in my, in my PhD research. Let's focus on the book. Uh, a colleague of mine, uh, uh, Alan Ellis, is a partner with Deloitte Monitor, he and I were kind of chuckling about Australia seems to have lots of little pilots uh, and proof points for AI and cloud. Uh, but when you really kind of ask the question upon, show us an Australian organization that, or actually just say, show us a, a global organization that is competing through AI and cloud, there are not that many Australian names. And why is that? And importantly for us, it was a case of saying, if Australian organizations are not really thinking through their business model and not think positioning for the future, what will happen to Australian businesses in the next five, 10, 20 years time? Uh, so that kind of got us going on thinking about what to do in that area. At the same time, you know, we're both consultants, well, one, one retired, one active, and you know, there's a whole uh, literature associated with consultants telling people what they think are the top three things, the top six things to do, et cetera, et cetera. And what we decided to do was something different. Uh, we thought it's going to be much more compelling for business leaders to read stories about other business leaders in this context. Yeah, it's one thing for an Australian company to, to hear upon what you know, pick whichever disruptor overseas that you want, whether you're the China uh, ecosystem, the US ecosystem, or the European, you can always get lots of those stories. But sometimes people say, yeah, but we're not like that. So what we wanted to do was to go find uh, a number of Australian stories uh, that are associated with organizations that are actually doing more than just a little proof point or appointing a chief data officer and assuming it's all, all solved. You know, people that are actually thinking upon uh, 
what is going to be our, our basis of advantage in the medium uh, and long term, and to what extent could AI and cloud help us there? Not that AI and cloud is what's driving it, but AI and cloud technologies are the catalyst by which we can understand our next generation of our business model. And I've had a look at that book already, and I'm halfway through it, and I find that the case studies are the best part of it. Um, I've I started reading it on Sunday, and already I've found with my own work, um, I'll be thinking, okay, this is the way I look at it, but how do other businesses look at this particular problem? And I'll find a business in this book that's similar to the one that I'm considering and read the case study for it and use that as a benchmark um, for my own work. Excellent. And that's exactly what we're trying to get people to do. So it's no longer, you know, how many times you say, what would Uber do to this business? And it's like, well, Uber wouldn't be in this business. So, you know, sometimes Mm -hmm. those types of comparisons are easy to generate, but hard to actually make real what you do tomorrow. So what we've tried to do is we've tried to find organizations, public sector, private sector, large, small, uh, listed, unlisted, uh, all over the, uh, all sorts of different industries, just to give that kind of variety of different experiences. So people can say, you know, I look more like this. And, and hopefully by seeing these things, people can say, you know what, if they can do it, can't I, can't my organization do this? And what we're really hoping to do is that this is edition one. And in 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, we have edition two where other organizations have been able to say, yeah, we've done it too. And these are the lessons that we have learned. So it's less about the three uh, co-authors getting the credit. Uh, It's much more about the fact that this our contribution is getting this book out there to hopefully kick off all these waves of innovation uh, and make Australia a better place. That was really why we did it. And one thing that really struck me with it, um, some of the case studies you've chosen are ones that I would never have expected to find in a book like that. Um, Mm. I mean, you've got ASX listed companies there, but you've also got, I think there's a local government um, area there. And every time I look at that local government area, Yeri Yambiak, I think it is, I always have to look, just reconfirm it. It's not one of my cases. It's one of my co-authors' uh, cases. Mm. But you're absolutely right. This is a relatively small uh, uh, council up in uh, right along the Murray border uh, in uh, the, you know, uh, New South Wales-Victorian border. Mm. And, and, and they had a very, very different reason for why they went down AI and cloud as opposed to one of our other case studies is... Uh, Seek. Uh, and, and of course, even in Seek, you sit back and say, Seek's a disruptor. But if you talk to the Seek people, they really weren't a disruptor from an AI and cloud. Yes, they did disrupt in a particular area, but they themselves were under disruption from other technology people. So, so we're trying to get this really broad range of, of, of triggers uh, in organizations so, so that people can say, yeah, we can see how that's done. Now, you say you've gotten, you've gotten halfway through the book. There's one more chapter that you're going to love, which is specifically looking at the board's role, mm. uh, the board's role in, in catalyzing change and controlling change, which is clearly a lot of overlap between what's in that particular chapter and, and the basis of my more formal uh, PhD research. So I haven't gotten to that chapter yet, but I have read some of the papers that have come out of your PhD research. 
So um, how about you um, introduce the audience to some of the concepts that you raise in those papers? Ah, sure. Uh, well, uh, Genevieve, you're, you're a PhD. Uh, uh, you've gone through the process and you know how much of the time uh, PhD research is based upon, there's kind of this gap in the literature. The literature says X is Y, but it doesn't actually say much about this. And so therefore let's go explore it. My research was actually driven completely the other way around, which is I am seeing an observation in practice that does not make any sense. Why? Uh, and luckily I had some very uh, good supervisors that were able to help me as I went through this particular journey. As you know, not all PH, not all academics uh, like the, the practice side. But essentially, as a practitioner, I dealt with a lot, a lot of organizations, many of which very large, very complex, uh, you know, extensive data histories. And if you thought of, uh, if you think about, you know, these old phrases about the data is the world of the 21st century, and it's all about the data-driven future and these types of things, then you sit back and say, shouldn't the organizations that have deep, long, broad data history, shouldn't they be the ones that are really going out there and saying, what insights can I mine out of this information? How might I use some of these patterns and these behaviors and these insights from the data to really change the basis of, our, of how we compete in the market or our price points or these types of things. And yeah, we can find all sorts of, again, going back to that, that, that phrase, proof points or use cases, but, but you haven't seen a lot of organizations really take that big leap. The ones that you actually, if you kind of go back and say, which, which of the organizations in Australia are really data-driven as, as their kind of core about how they do things, they tend to be organizations that don't have a data history. They're new starting organizations. And so there's this really interesting disconnect about, you know, why are the ones that theoretically have the greatest advantage not making much of that advantage? And the ones that don't have much of that natural advantage are making the most of, of, of what little advantage they possibly have. So there's this kind of interesting competitive disconnect that I was interested in. And, and, and you know, kind of why? And part of the issue as I was thinking this one through is this concept of, of uh, I was looking in particular around the secondary use of data. Uh, and so many of your, it's a term that's not necessarily uh, specifically defined or well understood, but a secondary use of data is in a situation where, you know, for example, Genevieve, perhaps uh, I sell you a product and I need some bits of information about you uh, to be able to deliver that good or service. That would be the prime, you've given me that data with the express purpose of allowing me to fulfill my service obligation to you. Now, if I, since I have that data, if I look at it from a slightly different lens or diff in a different type of way, that's the secondary use of that data. Uh, and there are lots of examples out there about harms that have been caused by inappropriate secondary use of data. And of course, in the Australian context, uh, uh, organizational risk and other types of things are a board level issue. So one of the questions I had to ask myself is to what extent is the, is the board kind of conscious of this opportunity, this trade-off as it relates to both the opportunity of the secondary use of data and the risks associated with the secondary use of data and how does that move forward.
So that was really the trigger for this, this uh, uh, to this this work. What I would say is that uh, much of the academic literature, when they think about uh, things kind of closest to data governance, which is IT governance, they really don't think about the board's role in IT governance. For some reason, they kind of stop at the CIO level. So it's been a little bit of a challenge to get people to say, at the end of the day, the board sets the organizational risk appetite and they monitor the adherence to that risk appetite. So to the extent that data uh, and data governance, especially within secondary use of data, uh, actually influences that, that risk appetite, then the board absolutely has a role. One of the really neat parts of my work is that you know, a lot of people say, ah, the board's not engaged, it's an operational issue, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I was actually able to determine that, that there are very specific attributes of a board uh, that lead the organizations in which they are leading, either to make uh, data as a, as a key competitive advantage, or data is interesting, but not really a source of advantage. There are very clear links between the attributes of, of a board and, and, and uh, whether or not organization goes to one end of that spectrum or the other. So it kind of verifies the fact, my initial hypothesis is the board matters. The board absolutely matters. Not in every situation, but you know, there'll be somewhere kind of like the board's kind of engaged, not engaged, whatever it happens to be. But there are absolutely certain situations where an attribute of board kind of takes them down to an area where data is not really all that relevant. Another one where data absolutely is key to advantage. What I thought was fascinating about your research was your choice to focus on boards rather than senior leadership. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I was wondering was, do you think you would have gotten very different results had you chose to focus on the executive attitudes instead of the board attitudes? That's a good question. I'm not entirely sure. Um, not entirely sure. Uh, I went after the boards really because it's very easy for, and I've seen this in practice, it's very easy for a executive who is reluctant to engage on the topic, kind of diminish the doability of the initiative because the board won't accept it. So mm -hmm. I thought, let me go after that alibi first. Let me go after that one first. Now, having said that, I am about to kick off another wave of research to understand exactly what you're talking about is the executive views. And then now that I have the board views, I can kind of understand how, how a natural executive view could be potentially influenced by the board view in a particular initiative. But I haven't done it yet. So it'll be interesting to see how that works and, and how that whole thing cascades down the organizational hierarchy. And I'd also be interested to find out what happens if you have the executive um, who have a very different attitude to um, data use from the board. You know, if uh, you have that conflict, what happens? We had lots of examples of this. Uh, so the, the way I went through this research, uh, what I should say is it's kind of a, a four stage approach. The first, first stage of work was actually to understand what the academic literature actually said. And that kind of allowed us to say, well, these types of factors could possibly be involved. Then I went out and I conducted some focus groups with some uh, peers of mine. These are 
consulting partners across a number of different firms that were actually active in dealing with uh, boards and executive management uh, on topics of the strategic use of data. That then enabled us to go out to the board directors themselves, about 41 board directors representing uh, 83 organizations by memory. And what we, what I did is I had uh, interviews with each one of them to be able to identify kind of the themes. And then I kind of went through a particular analytical approach to, to come up with my findings. But what was interesting is that there were numerous examples where a board member had said, I won't have the quote exactly with me, but uh, something to the effect of, uh, oh yeah, we, we in the board wanted to do something. Management didn't want to do it and used essentially this generic compliance issue as their get out of jail free card as far as not having to go off and go do something. So lots of clear uh, uh, situations where essentially the board wants to go faster than management. In some situations, management wants to go faster than the board. I had another another case example where a board member had said that the executives had had a thought that data analytics could actually make a a, a, a very significant difference to their business. So they're almost looking for an excuse to go off and go play on some of these capabilities. And working with the board, they found a particular uh, platform by which they can engage. So it is kind of interesting how how the recalcitrance uh, is not. The boards are recalcitrant and executives are, are, are gung-ho. Occasionally, it's the other way around. My own personal experience with dealing with boards has been any time that I've gone to a board with a data or analytics initiative, they're usually very positive about it. Um, boards want their organizations to be doing things in the data space. Yeah, that's right. Now, uh, now, some will, some will be very positive that way. Uh, other ones will be sitting back saying, I get it, but let's also look at the risks. Mm. Uh, one, of the, one of the other interesting findings about this is that if you, if you kind of read the AFR on a daily basis, you have this kind of concept of the, the digital NED. Mm. You know, the, the person on the board that has lived experience in, in data and analytics, et cetera, because we don't have enough board members that actually have that lived digital and data experience, that's why we're not that progressive. So therefore, the answer is to go hire more of these people. Mm. Now, what I found was that whilst having digital and, and data NEDs is important, the boards that are the most progressive towards using data as a, as a competitive advantage are actually kind of the intellectually curious ones. So, so just, it's actually more important to be kind of thinking upon what is the future of the organization, being intellectually curious about the possibilities, et cetera. So exactly what you're talking about there, people who are, when they hear the idea, they're open to the idea and they absolutely want to get there because of the intellectual curiosity. Uh, as opposed to, I've spent my life doing this, and I have a belief that we just need to do this, uh, which is the implication of the you know you need digital digital nets on your board. And and what you say about um, how intellectual curiosity is the way to go. Um, one thing I've found throughout life is the most successful people and the most intelligent people are the ones who have that intellectual curiosity. So it doesn't really surprise me that those are also the ones who are interested in exploring the whole data and analytics space. Exactly. And, and I had the opportunity to go uh, 
back. I haven't gotten to all of them, but I'm working my way through them. Uh, all of my uh, informants and just say, informants sounds bad, doesn't it? All of the, my participants in my, in my PhD research, the board directors, hmm. and I show them my conclusions and they all kind of like, yeah, that absolutely resonates with me. Hmm. You know, now that you've shown it to me, it makes a lot of sense that the one that, that the ones that are the most active are actually this kind of, this kind of concept of uh, the exploration mindset is actually what I talk about. Hmm. And what's also kind of interesting about this is the next conversation that gets into saying exploration mindset is not necessarily restricted just to data. It's about all sorts of different things. How might we re, uh, revitalize our customer proposition? What is going to be our employee value proposition of the future? What might, what do we have to do about resilience of our supply chains? It's th this, this is a, a non data or technical specific attribute of the individual that really leads to some interesting outcomes. And that's what the board directors really were interested in saying, yeah, I, I get why it's so important in the data, but it's also applicable to all these other things we have to deal with. It, it sort of reminds me of what you hear about Steve Jobs. I mean, the man was not a tech person to begin with, but he was curious and he had all these ideas and he was interested in exploring so much. And he ended up being one of the most successful tech CEOs of all time. Yeah, there you go. There you go. I, I had one of my interviewees and said, who, who I've known uh, for a while, I said, you know me, I'm a hack. Uh, but I, I think that surely we must, this is the question that I have, and he specified the question. I said, I'm pretty sure we can answer that question through data. And I'm surprised nobody has. Uh, why haven't people kind of asked the question upon how we can get a better outcome of this by looking at what we've done in the past? I may not be able to do it, but I do, do have a sense that it can be done. And I, you know, I want to understand, let's do it and see if we can find that insight. And if we don't find any insight, not that big of a loss, but mm -hmm. let's go out and find out is that, 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 that exploration, what might be kind of attribute. Yeah. And the acceptance of the fact that, if you go out and explore, you might end up failing. Yeah. Yeah. As that saying goes, if I fail more times than you, I win. Yeah, well, that makes the assumption that you, you fail and learn, fail and learn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking if you're on a, a sports team and you kept on shooting for goals and losing, you'd probably be off that team. But let's yeah, not go down yeah. that path. No, 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 no. The, the, the other thing that's kind of interesting is that if you think back to conventional wisdom, actually going, going back to the book for a second, you, you, do you remember in the introduction how we kind of said, this is the conventional wisdom, this is what people mm. think, and this is our experience. And, I'll, and hopefully you'll probably say, actually, that kind of jolted my frame of reference because, yes, I have read a lot of this conventional wisdom, and it's kind of interesting to see a different perspective on this. Mm. But, um, but just within the PhD research, the, there is a... The conventional wisdom is really around two attributes. One is the, the individual data and digital skills of, a, of an individual board director, which we've just discussed is, is supportive, but it's not nearly as important as these other less technically specific uh, skills and attributes are, such as an exploration mindset. The second thing is and whether or not this is driven by vendors or not, I'll, I'll leave this to your listeners. But a number of people will say, I love to do data initiatives, but our data is just not good enough quality. Mm. 
you know, we need to invest a lot of data quality. We need to a lot uh, invest in a kind of a data backbone. There's all this infrastructure and foundation we need to put in place before we can embark upon a real data strategy. And what I found was that most board directors will accept the fact that data is not good, but data doesn't have to be perfect to actually make some traction. So this kind of whole concept of saying foundation stuff, those are issues to work through, mm. but you still can get going. And again, it gets back into this, we may not have the perfect answer, but the answer that we have with the data quality that we have is better than not doing this. So let's proceed and move forward. You can fly the plan as you're building it. Yeah. My experience has been I've seen organizations that are not starting on any data analytics initiatives until they get their whole data warehouse set up. And then I saw one organization that uh, they set up an entire on-prem data warehouse and spent years doing that. And then they decided, no, actually, they wanted the cloud data warehouse. So they went back to square one um, to do that. But it's putting delaying actually getting to the data analytics that can really add value. And exactly. Exactly. By, yeah. And by comparison, I was in one organization I was working in. We needed a solution to a particular problem last week. And even though we didn't have all the cloud infrastructure we needed in order to do it, we managed to get something up and running in a month because there was a problem that needed to be solved. And we just worked out what was the minimum viable product in order to get that problem solved. And we would have gotten much better um, results from that than had we um, tried to set up a cloud platform from scratch and waited, I don't know, two, three years. Perfection is the enemy of the done, isn't it? Mm. That's an old, old colleague of mine would, would, would chuckle. Uh, and, and, you know, what's, what's interesting is both of us have these types of stories. And if we really sat back, I would argue, or I would guess, I write down what your guess is, is what percentage of organizations you know are delaying uh, doing something until the infrastructure is perfect. Got your number? Um, I've got a number in my head, yes. I'm saying at least 40% of the organizations I've had dealings with fall into that bucket of let's let's not move forward on the use case side or the use of it or the value generation until we have the 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 platform and the technical stuff perfect would be my mm. throwaway line is your your number about the same uh, mine was actually higher there you go yeah, yeah so i think that's hopefully the listeners uh will actually be able to say you know there is something in there let us Getting data, improving data quality and all that stuff is good. Let's not, let's not undersell that. Hmm. But what can we do with what we have now? And how can that contribute value in the very short term uh, tomorrow? As opposed to having to wait for four years until something's perfect. One thing I thought was very interesting in your book was, um, I think it was in those um, conventional points of wisdom that you challenged was you're saying that organizations rather than just focusing on the proof of concepts and doing these little short-term projects should look at the medium term you know yes and and I thought that was a really good point because I've ended up working in organizations where we've just been focusing on proofs of concept and because we don't have that infrastructure in place 
we can demonstrate little toys, but we can't get anything really major up and running. But I like that approach of focusing on the medium term because it's, okay, we want to get something up and running. We need to have some sort of investment in this. So we need to have some level of commitment, but um, we don't want to just, but we don't want to just get trapped in the weeds, for example. Well, there's also that conversation about the pig or chicken at breakfast. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the chicken is involved, yep. but the pig is committed. And yep. I think organizations that say, hey, we'll spend a little bit of money and a bit of a proof point. They're still holding on to the old legacy business model and the old way of doing things, aren't they? Mm. It's only when people are saying something effective, this existing way that we do business, it has been very successful for us over a period of time and does have some way to go. So it's but we know that we have to change. We know that we have to be moving towards something. I think it's those organizations that say, very happy to have, uh, but maybe not proof points, confidence building steps. Maybe that's mm. the phrase, but we're basically heading towards a new future as opposed to a uh, low cost if we throw it away, even after a success type of proof point. Uh, I don't know. It's just something I see way too much in Australian businesses, this kind of concept of uh, we'll throw a little bit of money, but we're really not committed to it. So even if it's wildly successful, we may not continue. The idea of a data analytics proof of concept now seems quite absurd because the implication is that if it if this proof of concept experiment doesn't work out, the organization will just decide to scrap data analytics and go back to the old way of doing things. And I don't think that that's a competitive strategy to have in the 21st century. But it's a very understandable one, right? Hmm. So imagine you are a person that's coming and not with an analytics background, you know, you're in operations or sales or marketing, whatever else you hear, you know, how much hype is out there about miscellaneous things. Uh, and you've probably, you know, people probably believe that that data analytics by itself is going to cure malaria. Uh, hmm. right? as opposed to having more realistic expectations upon what can be done. And importantly, what has to change in the, in the business process model of the future to make the most of it, right? Hmm. So, so I, I do actually understand the, uh, the reluctance uh, of some organizations or this or cynicism is probably the better phrase mm. saying, you know, how many times I've been sold this thing and, it, mm. and we tried and it never really quite works. And so, you know, whatever. So I get, I get that, but I think the better answer has got to be a case of let's not think about the data analytics proof point as an evaluation upon whether or not we can make the data analytics work. Let us think really upon where are we heading as an organization? What are the capabilities we need to have? Uh, they might be human, they might be technology, they might be data, whatever, it doesn't really matter, but we have had a considered point of view upon what that happens to be. Um, what, one of the, the other drivers in my, in my research was those organizations that had a sense of discomfort with their current sources of competitive advantage or those organizations that very consciously said, where are we going to be in five, 10, 20 years time when none of us are on the board, but we know we have to make the decisions today to enable that future. It's those organizations are able to say, 
I'm really happy to have little proof points and little experiments and all sorts of stuff because they're building towards something. It's not necessarily mm. an optionality in there. It's just a question of the path. So mm. That's to me, that's what's interesting. Yeah. And I've seen from talking to people in other organizations and the ones in which I've worked, the ones that I've seen the um, transformation to data, a data-driven workplace working best are where the board or the executive makes an announcement that this organization will be a data-driven organization and everything else has to contribute to achieving that goal. And interestingly enough, also the attributes of who and what they are and how they manage and everything else. So it's very easy for an executive leadership team to, to pronounce, we are going to be data-driven. Mm. And then off you people go <laughs> and bring us back the answer. When you, you know, it's much harder for us to say, we're going to be, um, and even the concept, I'm, I even push back a little bit upon the concept of saying, we're going to be a data-driven organization. Mm. I'm much more interested in an organization that says, this is who and what we are and what we're going to be in the future. And we very consciously understand how data will help us get there. You know, where data is the enabler of that future business model, not an outcome in itself. So what you're saying is it's not enough for an organization to just appoint a chief data officer or a chief analytics officer and let them loose. Correct. Because what changes in the business? Well, they've got an extra C-suite person. Extra C-suite person <laughs> as we put out a press release and we've announced this particular person. But, you know, at the end of the day, has the line changed what they do? Well, actually, what they'll, what they'll normally say is, well, that's all to the soft socialization skills of the chief data officer or the chief analytics officer. And if they don't have those socialization and selling skills, that won't change the business model. Uh, man, really? Seriously? You're going to go back to that stuff, uh, saying it's all the chief data officer's fault because they can't communicate, as opposed to the organization doesn't want to change because, after all, how many people really love changing? Yeah, uh -huh. not that many. Yeah. If you want to see how how hard change is, look at how many people buy gym memberships at the end of the year and look at how many people are still using them on the 15th of January. There you go. There you mm. go. Or in my case, removing chocolate from the house. That's <laughs> Oh, well. So in your paper, um, you mentioned four different configurations of boardroom sure. factors, which can determine an organization's attitudes to data. Um, as an enabler of strategy. Um, could you explain those to the listeners? Sure. Well, maybe what I can do is I can talk a little bit upon what we what we mean by configurations and the whole configurational approach. Okay. Um, so if you think about most very classic uh, uh, academic research, it's kind of like there are a whole bunch of different factors out there that could lead to an outcome. Here is the, uh, the positive regression between factor X and outcome Y. And so therefore we proved it statistically important and everybody knows this. Uh, you know, very simple things. You know, uh, the, the more that you live, I'm from Nebraska in the US, you know, the more that you live in the central parts of the US outside of a major city, you're probably gonna re vote Republican. I mean, we all know this, right? Mm. But just the fact that you live in the central part of the United States doesn't mean that you absolutely will vote Republican. There are a whole bunch of other factors and how do these factors interrelate is actually what the issue is. And so what configurational uh, theory uh, basically 
presupposes is that you can have different paths to the same outcome. So in, you know, there might be very different reasons why you vote Republican versus Democratic, even though the outcome, I voted Republican, I voted Democratic, is the same. And so what, the, what we try to do is we try to understand uh, what are the outcomes and then what are the specific combination of factors and the interaction of those factors that lead you to one outcome versus the other. So the exact same uh, uh, factor might be relevant in, in a particular configuration or not at all in a, in, in a different one. So that's the, the basis of the theory. Uh, and I think we can all kind of intuitively say, yeah, that makes sense. You know, the, uh, the world is not about individual factors. The world is about how the group of factors interact to produce the outcome. So what, what, uh, what I did in my research was to look at uh, identified nine different factors and then I try to do some analysis about how these factors uh, interacted with each other to lead to either a, a outcome of data is a critical enabler strategy or that data is a minimal source of advantage. And on the, the first one, which is the data is a critical enabler strategy, what I happen to find is that there are four uh, major factors uh, of the board and our organization in the context, uh, and two kind of peripheral factors, and they're spread across two different configurations. And the configurations basically are uh, saying, do you uh, does the the are there a sufficient number of people on the board with a configuration with a sorry with a exploration mindset? Uh, and that's both, both of the configurations have this specific attribute. Uh, sorry, both, have, both of the configurations have this factor. The second factor that both of these configurations have uh, uh, in common is this future focused. You know, is the organization thinking upon, or is the board looking upon where does this organization have to be in five, 10, 15, 20 years time, and therefore working back, what decisions do we have to make? To a lesser extent, as in it's helpful, but not really all that important, is the individual data experience, again, across both of these configurations. Uh, and a helpful, but not necessarily critical, is this concept of, of uh, key data proximity. And by key data proximity, I'm talking about, are we close enough to the data that we need to be able to run the right elements of analysis. So I'll give you an example of what I mean by this. Uh, one of our informants was an organization that was selling medical devices. And they're an Australian company, they sell some medical devices and they use a whole series of distributors around the world to sell their products. And what they're really trying to understand is how when, when our distributors are making pitches for our products on our behalf, how well are those pitches resonating? Well, the, the distributors are their own organization and they're not sharing that information back with the core manufacturer. So they have this kind of data proximity. We love to know that data, but we don't have it. And there's some other examples like this where you may not necessarily have the data that you really want within your four walls of the organization mm -hmm. or at least within your extended enterprise that you can get. 
So again, this kind of concept of key data proximity, you know, it, it, it's, it's a supporting idea, but it's not necessarily core. So those two major and two minor factors are common across the two different configurations. One configuration, however, basically says all the, you know, we have those four things and we have an active board. Uh, by an active board, we're talking about a board that is quite uh, active in, in identification, uh, development, stress testing, et cetera, of strategy, corporate mm -hmm. strategy. Because, you know, there's a spectrum upon uh, to what extent is the board or running the organization versus management's running the organization and the board is just monitoring and enhancing. So many of our, uh, the configuration of the, uh, has a very active board with these other attributes. The other one, other configuration, essentially has again those same four, you know, uh, or, uh, exploration mindset, future focused, uh, uh, and to a lesser extent, individual data experience and uh, key data proximity. But the other major one it has is this concept of discomfort with competitive, with current sources of competitive advantage. Where again, so it's kind of the flip side of the future focused, isn't it? Uh, hmm. Right, because people are saying, "Yeah, you know, I I, I know we're we are uh, are doing well now, but how mm. long will that last? We need to consciously think through that next generation." So those are the two configurations that are kind of driving uh, organizations to think of data as a critical enabler. On the flip side, uh, organizations that really kind of see data as a minimal source of advantage. Again, two configurations. One of those has just one single factor, and that is a non-active board. You know, the board sees itself purely as governance. Uh, you know, it's kind of on the extreme end of that, where you know, we have a we have a very solid relationship between what does the board do, what does management do, and as a board, we try not to cross that. And all questions of strategy are essentially handled by management. The second configuration that kind of leads uh, to data as a minimal source is uh, organization where you really don't have on the board much of an exploration mindset. Uh, they really aren't very future focused, and to a lesser extent, they're they're you know they're pretty comfortable with our current source of advantage. So it's kind of a case of saying, I don't really have a cause to think through why would we do anything else. You know, I'm not really thinking too far in the future. I'm pretty comfortable with what I've got right now. And I don't really want to ask the what might be kind of question. And so, so those are the kind of the four com uh, uh, configurations that we found. Now, this particular technique has certain, uh, they refer to it as, as parameters of fit, essentially like quality thresholds to be able mm -hmm. to say how, how accurate are these things. And certainly in the information systems literature, which is where this field is, uh, the, the solutions parameters of fit uh, for these solutions are actually reasonably high. So one of my external reviewers was kind of chuckling saying these are pretty uh, solid results. He, if he was just thinking about this out loud before actually doing the analysis, he would not have uh, expected such strong uh, predictive power in these configurations. So it's, it's uh, quite pleasing to hear. So, so what I'm hearing is basically it doesn't matter whether a board is looking at data as something they're excited about as a way of, you know, 
sending rockets to the moon or whatever, or is something they're terrified of destroying their company. As long as they're actively involved, um, things will go well. Whereas if you've got a board that's essentially just rubber stamping decisions and is happy just attending board meetings and just going with the status quo, then you're not going to have a good result with regard to data. Uh, well, I, I guess the phrase good result with data can be considered a pejorative term. But okay. what I would say, yeah, I, you and I would consider that uh, bad, but <laughs> others may not. But what I would say is that if you do have uh, a board that has very tight definitions of and very, very clear guardrails upon what they get involved in and what they don't get involved in, as a general rule, organizations with that tend to be pushing back to data as a minimal source of it. Because in that world, the only place that these ideas are coming from is management proposing them. Are the results, are your results dependent on industry? No, no. So we did, uh, we did do some kind of rough comparatives upon, uh, I'm sorry, for each one of the 83 organizations, actually I should say that. Uh, so we, we looked at about 83 organizations. We probably had sufficient data on 57 of those 83 organizations to, uh, to actually do this type of level of analysis. Mm -hmm. And we have representatives across all 11 of the GICs. Global Industry Classification Scheme is a Morgan Stanley thing that says mm -hmm. yeah, you're uh, automotive versus you're a consumer product or whatever. So we had, across the 57, we had representatives across all of those. And I did do a little bit of sensitivity. I mean, the numbers are small, so you can't really get a, a huge statistical accuracy on this. But by and large, uh, industry does not play much of a driver on this at all. Which is interesting, considering you think upon this whole question of compliance being mm. so much more top of mind in certain industries relative mm. to others. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time working in the financial services industry, which tends to be very compliance focused. So I'm surprised that this isn't industry dependent. So we did actually have uh, uh, compliance as a priority as one of the nine factors that were included in the analysis. Mm -hmm. By compliance uh, priority, I'm talking about uh, compliance is important is the number one thing mm -hmm. on one extreme versus compliance is good, but so is executing strategy. Right, so mm. that kind of trade-off. Uh, anyhow, uh, as we work through the analysis, uh, it turns out that compliance priority really wasn't a significant contributor to whether or not an organization was active in using data or saw data as a, as a uh, minimal source of advantage. Which again is a little bit counterintuitive, right? Because people would say, uh, highly compliance-driven organizations would tend to take a, a, a risk or a threat view of the secondary use of data uh, as opposed to an opportunity. I would imagine that having a board with a more passive view of the use of data and with the use of any sorts of technology could be particularly dangerous to the longevity of an organization. Would that be right? Uh, my, my, I have not got any data or analysis to support or to provide you a real answer to that. In my gut, I say yes, mm -hmm. because it goes back into this question upon uh, being future focused. Mm -hmm. 
if you're only thinking about what happens in the next three, six, nine months, or you know, next recording period, the recording after that, mm. fine, you'll you'll deliver your numbers against that. But what happens after that? It's mm. unknown. And you certainly, as a shareholder, I would love to know that my my the board of the organizations I'm investing in are thinking about not just the short term, mm. but also the medium and the long term. Mm. Would be my my preference. And if I was an executive or a staff member of one of these organizations, I would also want to have a more active board um, governing my organization. Yep, but there is, uh, well, actually, it's interesting. Um, I would think that as well, but sometimes you have other, there's a whole discussion upon the degree to which a, a board should be active or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the AICD, Australian Institute of Company Directors, will have a particular point of view. The legal scholars will have a particular point of view. Uh, I tend to err the other side. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, so I won't necessarily show my biases on that particular attribute. But what I will show is that those boards that tend to be more active tend to be thinking about this issue more than those boards that are not active. Mm. So suppose I'm an executive or a leader in one of these organizations where the board is more passive, but I want to get up and running a data initiative and mm-hmm. I'd like to transform the mindset of the board to a more active mindset. Mm-hmm. Is there any strategies that you could recommend for doing so? Well, I think the first strategy is to highlight the gap. Because mm. uh, a lot of people are saying, of course, I got an exploration mindset. Uh, you know, it's a little hard saying, you know, I don't have an exploration mindset. People, people will tend to naturally react against that. So in, uh, in the, the research itself, there are some um, rating scales, some rubrics, as it were. Mm. And I think these are actually can, can be quite useful as kind of self, uh, self-assessment type of tools and techniques. And, we, and you saw we had something similar in, in the book. Mm. Uh, rate yourself. We're not going to tell you what the answers are, but going through that process of, of self-exploration, we say, you know, are we really lined up? Uh, mm-hmm. as, a, uh, as an organization to support these initiatives. So I think that's the very first thing I would do is kind of uh, to, to deal with your senior stakeholders and try to say, typically organizations that succeed have these attributes. Let's see where we are. Let's mm-hmm. see if there's significant mm-hmm. gaps. And then we ask the question upon what is this, you know, what are we gonna do about this particular gap? And if the gap happens to be something about key data proximity, well, maybe you can go off and talk to legal and procurement upon getting access to that data the next time around or whatever it happens to be. If it's, uh, I doubt it's going to be individual data experience because we just said it's not that big of a deal, right? If it is an exploration mindset, oh, hmm. that could be a slightly more challenging thing for the organization to deal with. Hmm. You, know, you can't really just tell your board of directors saying you guys got to be more exp- uh, explorative, but the chairman uh, or chairwoman of the firm might actually say, as we refresh our board, we're starting to think upon this is a specific attribute that we're looking to encourage. So, but that would be a courageous decision by the individual uh, executive to kind of go up to the board and say, in order for me to succeed, you guys are going to have to change some things. But maybe that's what we have to do. 
maybe that's the solution. I mean, if you want to get any of these things up and running, you need to have courageous executives. Yeah, yeah. And courageous individuals in general, I'd say. There you go. Yeah. So we're getting very close to time, but Mm -hmm. I have a few final questions. Sure. Is there anything on your radar in the AI data and analytics space that you think is going to become important in the next three to five years? Uh, yeah, I think that the degree, the increasing ability of self-service analytics and self-service AI is going to be brilliant because, you know, I, I've been out of practice for a little while, but one of the modes that I happen to see a lot was I do this, you do that. Hmm. And as long as that happened, uh, the people that do this are not thinking upon you know, AI or cloud or anything else like this as, as potential mechanisms by which they can succeed. The more that we can actually get uh, kind of these self-service tools and, 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 and lower the, the barriers of adoption at an individual level, the more people will play around. It's just their natural mm-hmm. way of thinking. And I think that will be really important. The second thing I think is... Um, the legal and regulatory uh, framework is going to really evolve over the next however many years. Um, it's behind. I mean, we can all kind of chuckle at uh, uh, incidents in the paper the last uh, 24 hours, last 48 hours, and how that relates to mm. data retention issues and all that type of stuff. So, mm. you know, that will all come through. Uh, What's the third thing? Third thing I think perhaps is that there will be, there will continue to be the the evolution of firms and how this moves forward. So if you were still kind of a little bit on the reluctant side, to what extent will you be the absolute minority? Now, there there are some situations where the last last firm standing can still make a pretty good market. I actually read an article about the last individual that's still uh, distributing three and a half inch and five and a half inch uh, floppy disks. And the individual said, I'm a lawyer, but somehow I got in this business is actually reasonably profitable because I'm the last one around. but I'm thinking that, you know, for other types of things, you know, if all your competitors are moving forward in this particular area, how do you start thinking upon where you want to be in something other than I'll do that too? How do you mm. really, how do you deal with that? So those would be the three things I'm thinking about. Yeah, what you were saying about the mark for three and a half inch fluffy disks, uh, that reminds me of apparently if you can program in COBOL, there's quite a big uh, market because there are so many legacy systems that require COBOL prof- pro- programming. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And yeah. we can chuckle about it, mm. but chuckling about it, laughing about it doesn't, doesn't deny the fact that it's there. Oh, Yeah. yeah. And what final advice would you give to organizations looking to maximize the value of their data? Ah, that's a, that's a, a, a really easy one. Don't ask the question, are we maximizing our data? Don't ask that question. Don't start there. Okay. Ask yourself, where are we and where are we going? And then to what extent does data help us get there? Right? Because if you, if, yeah, because if you keep thinking about are we maximizing use of data, data, it, you know, let me, uh, my wife has uh, brought home something. It's, you know, somebody was looking at an employee survey mm-hmm. and they're really focusing upon their uh, 
employee survey completion rates. Mm. And I mean, really focused. We want to get 70% of people uh, completing the survey. I'm like, isn't that the kind of the wrong number? Yeah, I get the fact that if you don't have at least a certain percentage of people, that's a sign that they aren't engaged. Mm. Just the fact you got a 90% employee uh, completion rate of, uh, of employee survey data doesn't mean you have happy employees, do you? And I think it, with data, it's a similar type of thing. The question is not, sorry, uh, the, the explicit question shouldn't be, are we maximizing data? That should be the, the, the enabler for the broader question of how are we generating the most value? Mm. And you and I would say one of the most natural ways of doing that is through data. Mm. So don't let data become a hammer in search of a nail, so to speak. Exactly, exactly. This has been fantastic, and I could quite happily talk for another hour. But <laughs> I'm sure our listeners have other things that they need to do. Uh, for listeners who want to learn more about you or get in contact, uh, what can they do? Uh, sure, I'm on LinkedIn. So Stuart Black, um, uh, the one that's in Melbourne. Uh, uh, my parents should have made my name a little bit more unique. Uh, it was in Nebraska, but not down here, let me tell you. Uh, I'm also uh, accessible uh, at the, my University of Melbourne uh, area. It's uh, stuart.black at unimail.edu.au. Uh, at some point in time, one of my co-authors is going to put our, uh, our little microsite for our book up. Uh, and I, I had the URL on the tip of my tongue, uh, sorry, the URL on the tip of my tongue, but I forgot what that happens to be. But certainly uh, get in touch with me through my email uh, or actually my mobile telephone number, which is no big deal, 0408-774-330. Let's have a chat. Good to keep going. And more importantly, what I'm really hoping is that this type of work kicks off success across Australia. I've got a lot of kids and they're all kind of coming up uh, in working age population. So my goal is to, to make this a really vibrant and prosperous country and hopefully through data so anything i can do to accelerate that just give me a shout great mission yeah well you got to have a mission to do something right why not make it uh, uh big and bold and for anyone who's interested in reading Stu's book um i got my copy on amazon australia so you can definitely get it there and i'm sure there are other retailers that are also selling it fantastic and and hopefully that's just version one soon we'll have version two I look forward to it. Done deal. So um, thank you for joining me today, Stu. My pleasure. It was fun. Uh, we should oh, do this more often. I'll hold you to that. Done deal. And for those in the audience, thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and this has been Value Driven Data Science brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting. <laughs>